The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Most people are familiar with Eckhart Tolle's best selling book, The Power of Now. Today's Main Street Vegan program is going to revolve around this concept of the present time. After the break, we'll speak with Matt Frazier, the no-meat athlete who was on the show back in 2014. And in the years since, his life has evolved from competitive athlete to dad and plant-based businessman. So we'll talk about changing as we move through our lives as vegans and as human beings. And in our first segment... Dr. Neil Barnard is returning. He was just with us six months ago, but the first half of 2020 has brought more change to the world than probably any period through which most of us have lived. So today we focus on vegan living, health, change, and getting this thing right for all beings here and now. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran. Welcome to the program and welcome to our first guest, the inimitable Neil Barnard, MD, founder and president of Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and author of a dazzling array of books, the most recent being Your Body in Balance, the New Science of Food, Hormones and Health. Welcome, Dr. Barnard. Thank you, Victoria. Great to be with you again. Well, it's always a pleasure, and it is a very different world uh, from (laughs) the one that we were living in uh, the last time that you and I were on the air together. So just give us your take as a physician. You're there in Washington, D.C., in the heart of everything. Where are we as of right now, and we're talking late June 2020, with, with COVID, with health, with moving forward? Well, we are um, arriving at a sobering reality. Uh, Back in early March, late February, people had the hope that the virus would come in, maybe it would last for three or four weeks, and and then it would go away, or maybe a little bit longer than that. And by June, we'd be all back to normal. That is not what has happened. 
um, it's quite clear that although the virus came in fast, it is not leaving quickly at all. And it's going to tail off very slowly. And the best predictions are that uh, looking into the fall and the winter, it's still going to be around in one way or another. And, and of course, we're seeing right now uh, increases in cases uh, in s cities and states that have done reopening. But regardless of the reopenings and regardless of whether people wear masks and so forth, this virus is just here. Uh, it's very much like if if we went back 100 years, 102 years, 1918, the influenza, H1N1, arrived and it killed 50 million people worldwide. But it's not as if it then went away. It became part of our life that now we have the flu. Um, we, we are now going to be living with coronavirus and I think we're going to live with it uh, pretty much forever unless we happen to have a, uh, a vaccine that's marvelously effective or treatments that are very good. I think this is something to live with. So but that's all the bad news. The good news is that we have a quite powerful understanding about how to make this virus much less deadly. And that's by tackling the underlying medical conditions that make it worse. And so if a person has diabetes and it's in bad control, if they change their diet and lifestyle, so the diabetes gets under dramatically better control. The mortality will drop from about 11% for diabetes under poor, poor control to about maybe 1% if a person gets COVID with diabetes under good control. Um, with hypertension, with obesity, with asthma, all these things, if we get them under control, we still don't want to get COVID. It could still be a bad thing, but you can cut your risk of dying dramatically. And so the, the other piece of this is that we've got racial disparities. Um, blacks are about 13% of the U.S. population, but about 22% of COVID deaths. For Hispanics, it's about 18% of the population, 33% of COVID deaths. And that reflects a lot of things. It reflects access to medical care. It re reflects who's able to work from home, who can't, um, other things. But it also reflects the fact that diabetes is dramatically more common in blacks and, and Hispanics compared to whites. And that can be addressed to a substantial degree to the extent that we really decide to tackle the foods and the food availability issues that have made diabetes the, the epidemic that it is. That is utterly fascinating. I know that you are going to be part of the press conference tomorrow for the launch of, of the boycott meat effort. Uh, we did talk about that on last week's episode. But since you did mention the, the racial disparities, can you touch on what's going on in the slaughter industry and why so many people that work there are getting sick? Oh, my goodness. The figures are just worse every day, every day. We're well over 25,000 uh, slaughterhouse workers that have gotten, that are positive for COVID and well over hundred are dead. And what then got people's attention is you look at the most hygienic person in the slaughterhouse, it's the USDA inspector. The person who stands in the corner and is wearing the white coat and is, and is fully gowned up and everything. And there have been, uh, they, they stopped reporting this but the last I heard, we had at least 200 of them were sick and at least five of them were dead. And the conclusion is strikingly clear that the slaughterhouses are hotbeds of the virus. And in, this, in the state of South Dakota, over half of the cases of COVID in the entire state were in one single building. And that's the Smithfield Slaughterhouse in Sioux Falls. 
And you're seeing that in every one of these places where you've got people shoulder to shoulder. They're, they're working on, on carcasses. Um, they need a job. They want to go in. Uh, they they want to get paid, but they don't want to die. Um, and yet uh, the, the virus becomes airborne. People might be coughing or sneezing, and, and many are asymptomatic. They could be passing the virus to each other. Um, and so it, it's horrible for the workers. But the other thing to think about is this. If, if a person cutting up a pork chop is coughing, sneezing, or just breathing out the coronavirus, how much of it lands on the meat as the meat is being wrapped up? Now, many people will say, well, but what, so what if that meat does have the virus and it comes into your home? You, you don't get the virus from food. It's true that the, the portal that, by which the virus enters your body is not through your mouth. It doesn't go down your esophagus into your stomach the way, say, salmonella might or the rotavirus or something like that, or hepatitis B virus. It's something you inhale. But when the virus comes in on a chicken, the, the chicken slaughterhouses filled with coronavirus infected employees, I'm sorry to say, maybe as many as one in 20, um, their cough. The virus gets on the meat. Uh, you get the chicken home. Uh, you open it up. The chicken juice, which is really the slaughterhouse water, uh, gets on your kitchen counter. You touch the product in the store. You touch it on the way home. You then touch your steering wheel. You touch your face. And you're auto-inoculating it. It's not that you swallow it necessarily. It's that you can then inhale it. Um, and so for the very same reason that you don't want to shake hands with somebody on the street, and we want to keep social distancing and so forth. And, and people are wiping down surface, surfaces. And if they get out of an Uber, they wonder, did I just catch the, the, the virus from the, 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 hand, the, the, the armrest or something like that? If you're bringing meat into your home, whether it's pork or beef or chicken or even fish, it's very likely that, you, that it's got the virus. And all the more so because the virus is killed eventually at room temperature. It's killed if you heat it but it's preserved when it's refrigerated and especially if it's frozen. So the virus is perfectly viable in uh, meat products at the store and in your home. So it's, if, you, if you needed another reason to not buy meat, um, this, is, this is one. That is powerful. Now talk a little bit, please, Dr. Barnard, about the connection between eating the meat and other animal products and some of these underlying conditions that, that make the coronavirus situation worse. Yeah, it, when, when the virus emerged in China, it was very clear that about 40% of people um, who had this had high, high blood pressure. And what's that, what's that about? Well, when you eat fatty foods, you're, the fat that you're consuming, I'm talking about meat, cheese, the fat that you're consuming gets into the bloodstream. It makes your blood thicker, more viscous, and your heart has to push harder for that viscous blood to flow, and that raises your blood pressure. When you switch to a plant-based diet, those viscous, thick, gooey foods are gone, and your blood is less viscous, and it flows more easily, and your blood pressure falls. And also, plants have potassium, which is a blood pressure-lowering element. So that's a good thing. With, uh, if you don't have hypertension, your risk of dying of this virus just went way, way down. Um, for diabetes, the, the, the real issue with type 2 diabetes is that these same fatty foods pack fat into the muscle cells and liver cells. And if fat gets into your cells, 
that stops insulin from being able to work. It causes this condition called insulin resistance. That's the first step toward type 2 diabetes. And again, when people go on a plant-based diet, you're not eating meat, you're not eating dairy, so all that fat is gone. If you keep oils really low, the fat that has built up in the cells starts to dissipate. The insulin resistance goes away or diminishes, and diabetes improves dramatically. And let me just repeat these figures that I mentioned earlier. Uh, researchers have looked at an enormous number of people with diabetes. Those in poor control have an 11% mortality from COVID. Those in good control have a 1% mortality. And you can get in good control in two, three weeks by changing your diet and making sure your medications are up to date. So these underlying conditions are the difference between life and death. You're gonna get, you may well get COVID despite your best efforts. You do wanna wear a mask, you do wanna wash your hands, you do wanna socially distance, but you wanna make sure that your body is prepared in the event an infection comes in. And that means a plant-based healthy diet. Well, there's no reason not to. It's, uh, it's very exciting stuff. So uh, Dr. Barnard, moving from COVID, you also have in the past six months with the world changing around us, a brand new book. And this book now has been around for six months. It's kind of like uh, when people have a six-month-old baby. <laughs> That's when uh, he or she is really starting to show his personality. What have you learned from your audiences, from, from your readers, since this book came out in terms of lifestyle and hormonal well-being? I will have to tell you, you know, the, the book is all about hormones. So um, hormones are substances that determine a lot of our health. And so infertility or menstrual cramps or certain cancers. Um, are all related to hormones, to diabetes, to thyroid disease. But just last week, I had the most wonderful thing. Um, I was in a call with uh, some of our members, and one of the members said, I read your book. And she said, I have been suffering with hot flashes day after day after day. And in your book, you said that a plant-based diet should help, but that emphasizing soy products should help. But she said, I wanted to go further. I didn't want to just have some tofu or some tempeh or some miso soup. She said, I want to eat the actual soybean. So she got an Instapot, it, you know, an Instapot um, pressure cooker. Yeah, and people she, love them. <laughs> she, she put her soybeans in there. And she's been having a quarter cup or a half cup of soybeans every day on her salad and everything, everything else. She said, in three days, my hot flashes were gone, just gone. And I thought, that's quick. She said, the difference is I didn't just have a little bit of tofu here. I had the actual soybean, non-GMO, and I'm having them every day, and it is a cure. And I suddenly realized there are very few things that are more discouraging and annoying than hot flashes. And how many women are having trouble sleeping at night because, you know, you wake up over and over and over again and you're drenched with sweat? Um, when a person changes their diet and, and brings in the soy, there's substantial evidence that can help. But we are going to be doing some investigations now to see just how much it can help. And if people go on a plant-based diet for that reason, then that's a win-win too. That is fascinating. And yet, as you well know, whenever any of us go out to speak and we so much as mention, oh, I had some nice tempeh last night, half a dozen hands go up and say, soy is terrible for you. So can you talk a little bit about where the, this came from and how those of us who just want the world to be vegan and happy and healthy can address soy with those who are so afraid? Yes, great question. And let me give you the answer, but I also want to say that the, what I'm going to say is 
written and referenced in your body and balance my new book so i'm hoping that people will xerox that page and and share it with other people because so many people get this wrong okay back in the 1930s researchers discovered that soy products contain compounds called isoflavones and the isoflavones do attach to the estrogen receptor uh, say on a breast cell and so that convinced people that they maybe they would cause cancer um, however we have had lots and lots of time to test that out and what is abundantly clear in uh, oh dozens of studies really is that women consuming the most soy they don't have more breast cancer than other people. They have less breast cancer, substantially less. And, and you can you can look at populations like Asians or Asian Americans who, in some cases, consume heroic amounts of soy. Um, and you can compare them to other Asians or Asian Americans who, for whatever reason, don't eat it. And what you see is this gradation. The more soy women eat, the less breast cancer they have. And it it's not per, it's not a perfect prevention, but women consuming abundant amounts of soy on a daily basis have about 30% less breast cancer compared to other women. And women previously diagnosed with breast cancer, for these women, abundant cons consumption of soy reduces mortality. And that's the opposite of what many women have heard. You go on, on you know, your well-meaning but ill-informed oncologist says, after your breast cancer treatment, you can't have any soy because that's going to make your cancer come back. Researchers have studied that, and that advice kills women. The idea that you should avoid soy increases mortality about 30%. Let me make sure that I'm being very clear. When, when women consume soy products after having been diagnosed with breast cancer, high consumption of soy products is associated with a 30% reduction in dying of it. If, if women avoid soy after breast cancer, they are more likely to die. So you don't have to have soy, it's totally optional, but, but soy products reduce the risk of getting cancer and reduce the risk of dying of it. That is utterly fascinating. So I know that you studied psychiatry with a, a lot of, uh, of um, fo focus uh, for, for a very long time, and um, that's a, a specialty of yours. Can you just talk a little bit about the mindset that allows some of these untruths to become truths in people's psyches? I can't fully explain the vicissitudes of human behavior, but I can tell you that only a relatively small group of human actions can be explained by logic. Um, what I would have to say is that when it comes to food, we have a couple of things going on. Food choices are dictated only a little bit by logic, but most people don't get out of bed in the morning saying, how many grams of fiber do I need? I'll choose my breakfast accordingly. That doesn't happen. Uh, we make choices based on our culture and based on our families of origin. Uh, and that's kind of for good reason. You know, if, if it worked okay for them, it's gonna hopefully work okay for us. Um, it didn't poison them so far as we can see, it's not gonna hurt me. Um, but the other part of it is there are there are food addictions and, and you and I have talked about this a lot. And, and I don't mean just sugar addiction. Um, or alcohol addiction. I'm talking about a great many foods, uh, cheese, um, croissants, uh, sugar fat mixtures. People get hooked on these things and then whenever you're hooked on something you're going to rationalize it and that's going, I'm, I'm sorry to say that's part of it too. Yeah, fascinating. So there's confusion about soy and there is confusion about a lot of other things. And I think very much in, in our movement too, because when I speak with my fellow vegans, I see these people who are truth seekers. 
they really want to know what's really up with all these things that we're facing. And sometimes when there's not a clear answer, it's very easy to be dissuaded by uh, something that kind of comes from left field. So earlier on, you were talking about uh, a possible effective vaccine uh, for, for this coronavirus. A lot of people are very distrusting of, of vaccines, of anything that comes from big pharma. Is there a kind of middle path on that? Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. Um, for, first of all, let me say a couple of things. Um, vaccines, in certain cases, clearly are helpful and effective. Um, when I was a little boy, um, the polio vaccine came in and it dramatically reduced the number of kids and, and adults who developed polio. I mean, it's, it, it was a terrible, terrible thing and, and the vaccine was wonderful. However, um, some people got polio from the vaccine. Uh, when I was a medical resident, we had uh, a number of cases of uh, where a vaccine triggered a neurological syndrome called Guillain-Barre syndrome. So, so vaccines can be life-saving. They can knock out illnesses. They can prevent illnesses. They can be very, very effective. Uh, there's nothing like a rabies vaccine if you've been bitten by a rabid animal. Um, they're great, but they do have risks. And it's understandable that many people would think, I don't really want to inject something into me. And there's a vegan part of this too, which is that vaccines are, many vaccines, the old fashioned ones, are produced with eggs. You inject, uh, say, the flu influenza virus into an egg and it propagates inside the chick. And then you open up the egg and you take the virus out and then you inject it into another egg to make sure that it's killed. Um, here in our medical center, here at the Barnard Medical Center, we, we use influenza vaccines for people who want them but we use a specific brand that does not use eggs. It's, it's the most expensive and the best flu vaccine. It's called FluBlock, and it costs us more money um, to, to get it. We don't make any money off of it at all when we uh, administer it, but it, it, it doesn't have that, that feature. It, it's, eggs are not used at all. So it's good for people who have egg allergies, but it's also good for, for people who don't wanna contribute to the egg industry. So th those are a couple of thoughts. Uh, vaccines are helpful, but people have, I think, a, some good reason for skepticism in certain areas. So what do we do going forward in our lives? Just, just give us the Dr. Neil Barnard, how to live today wisdom. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I wish I could call it wisdom, but with regard to where we are with COVID-19, let me just say that I do think we need to continue to contain the virus to the extent that we can. The, the initial idea was to flatten the curve, and that meant don't have everybody get sick in April because hospitals will be overwhelmed. Fair enough. But we've now realized you don't want to get it sick in August either, or October, or January, or anytime. So if you can avoid getting the virus, do. Um, so that means we want to continue to be careful uh, about all the measures that will prevent it. But we cannot rely on that because it is so easy to get this uh, virus inadvertently. And that means a healthy plant-based diet to make sure that we're as strong as possible. And finally, fuel all this with compassion. It, I truly believe that if people looked at the racial disparities with this disease, my, my hope is that they would be clamoring for, if I can, for want of a better word, food justice, so that we can have an end to the disparities in diabetes and hypertension and obesity that are fueling these these COVID deaths. And if we did that, just imagine what that could mean. That could mean many people eating in a healthful way so that maybe they won't die of COVID and maybe they won't die of diabetes either. Um, wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't and, 
and if we can spare the animals and the earth the toll that unhealthy foods are are taking then this is going to be a win-win-win right and and it will also help to have a really good doctor and uh, full disclosure we did this in a little ad for the barnard clinic a, a few weeks ago and now in an editorial sense i just want you to tell everybody how are you making your wonderful services available to people outside the Washington, D.C. area? Oh, well, thank, thank you for asking. Yes, the Barnard Medical Center has telemedicine services. Um, and you just go to our website, which is barnardmedical.org. And we'd be glad to, to help you. Um, you can also call us at 202-527-7500. And a live human being will answer the phone. And wow, one of those. <laughs> exactly. And we have doctors, we have a nurse practitioner, we have diet. You might you might say, I, I like my current doctor, but I need a good dietitian to help me with my diet or I need to sort this out. And they're all there to help you. Um, the, the only negative thing is we have to get licensed one state at a time. And so there are 50 states and a lot of practitioners. But we are licensed in New York and California and Washington, D.C. and Maryland and Virginia and Missouri and Massachusetts and lots of other states. So you'll see if you go to our website, barnardmedical.org, we'd be more than happy to, to talk with you. Oh, fantastic. And we'll put that on uh, our show notes at MainStreetVegan.net as well. I think there's a question people have about telemedicine. Like you talk about this flu block flu shot. What if somebody wants that? They obviously can't get that over a phone. Can you make referrals? Okay, great question. Um, yes, there there are certain things that, that work well with telemedicine, certain things that don't. It's surprising what you can do. The vast majority of things work perfectly fine. A person's got high blood pressure or they got menstrual pain and, and, and they might need a medication. They might need a blood test. They might need an x-ray. We can order all of those and have them done at a place that's convenient to you. Uh, but if we need to listen to your heart or if I need to give you a flu shot, Personally, that's not going to work by telemedicine. So if you need a flu shot, then we would we would guide you to a place locally where you can get one. You think of everything. And <laughs> when I think about how long you've been in this work, what was your very first book? It was a book called The Power of Your Plate. And it came out, oh, in the early 1990s. But um, each, each one, when, when I get something I'm really excited about and I think people would love to learn about, I... I, I try to put it together in a book. And, and by the way, let me shout out to Lindsay Nixon. Lindsay S. Nixon did all the recipes for Your Body and Balance. And she sent, it, sent me the recipes with a note that said, Dr. Barnard, I want you to know that this way of eating cured my menstrual cramps too. So, so I'm hoping that, that people will, if they want to know about hormones and hormone illnesses, that they'll pick up a copy of Your Body and Balance and share it. The most important thing is to share these things Perfect. with, with Absolutely. other people who are suffering. Yes, yes, indeed. Dr. Neil Barnard, the book is Your Body in Balance, the fabulous organization, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, PCRM.org, and the Barnard Clinic is there now able to serve more of us in more places. So um, we will catch you next time. Bless you, Dr. Neil Barnard and everybody else. Stay with us because we're going to be back with the No Meat Athlete. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. 
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan program. If you're new or just want to check out some of the things that I do, you can go to MainStreetVegan.net. So some of the many things that you'll find there are the show notes for this very episode and all of our eight years of archives, which are pretty cool. Um, And you can also find a weekly blog. You can subscribe to that. You can find out about the film that I produced last year, A Prayer for Compassion, that you can get on uh, Vimeo or Amazon Prime. That's to introduce vegan ideals to people who identify as religious or spiritual. And you can also read about Main Street Vegan Academy, where if you're already vegan and you really want to up your game on that, you can be trained and certified as a vegan lifestyle coach and educator. We offer an in-person program in New York City or a brand new program via Zoom. So if you are far away and would like to uh, get educated in the comfort of your own home, uh, we do have a Zoom program. So do check that out at MainStreetVegan.net. Also, something mentioned in the first half was the boycott meet that's starting to happen. This is a way to reach out to people who haven't really been interested in going vegetarian or vegan before that they just might want a boycott meet to draw some attention to what's going on in the meat industry and the plight of the workers. So you can check that out at boycottmeat.com. Now it is my pleasure to welcome back after far too long a lapse, Matt Frazier. He's a vegan ultra marathoner and the founder of No Meat Athlete. He's the author of two books which have sold over 100,000 copies. That's, as a fellow author, I can tell you, that's a lot of books. And um, Matt is also the co-founder of Complement, a vegan supplement line focused on providing simple, transparent, innovative solutions to improve the health of vegans and of our movement. If you listen regularly, you know that Complement is sometimes a sponsor on this program, and I am a great fan and customer myself. Welcome, Matt Fraser. Well, thank you, Victoria. It's it's uh, great to be back on here. And you're right, it has been way too long, uh, <laughs> longer even than I realized. I was thinking it was like two or three years ago, but uh, you just told me that it was like six, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Time flies. You were on with Brendan Brazier, and we we did a show on on athletes whose focus at that moment. And I believe Rich Roll may have been on on that one too. People who at that time, if somebody said, "What do you do?" you guys would have all said, I'm an athlete. And now I think you would all say, I, I am something else or I'm also something else. So today, right now, Matt Frazier, what do you do? <laughs> My kids are athletes. Uh, no, that's, that's of course a joke. Uh, they are athletes, but that's not what I do. It's just, but it is one of the things I do. Um, I, I guess, man, in 2014, that was the year, um, that was actually right when I stopped running like, I wouldn't say I was ever a competitive runner, uh, but I was a very, very passionate runner. And that was the year that I ran uh, my first and still only 100-mile uh, ultramarathon, uh, which which d- didn't break me or something. It didn't make me give up running. 
but once I did that, it, it kind of just felt like there wasn't anything left with running. I mean, certainly there was, you could get way, way faster than I was. Um, but you know, it, it just, that was the thing I had had my set sight on sets sites set on for so long. Um, after, before that I had this goal of qualifying for the Boston marathon. So like once I had gotten those two things accomplished and they both had seemed so impossible when I first set out to do them, um, you know, the, the passion, the spark that, that running had for me that it just, it just, I found that kind of hard to, uh, to regain. So I've started, um, fooling around with a lot of different sports. I started playing soccer after my son got really into soccer. And as I said, he, he takes up a lot of my attention, uh, with his soccer career. Cause he's, he's actually a very, very gifted young player, uh, vegan like me and like everyone else in our family. Uh, so it's been so much fun trying to like, um, I wouldn't say manage his career cause he's only 10 years old, but to teach him all these lessons that like I learned about kind of like, you know, how do you, how do you create a sense of discipline and how do you learn habit? Like, cause when I was a kid, we, I sort of was raised like everyone around me to think that like, you know, you, you either have the gift or you don't to become great at, you know, any particular endeavor. Uh, and so much research in the past like decade has just become, it was around before that, but it's become popular in the past decade. Um, pointing to the fact that you can, you know, it so much is about like, how much time are you willing to put in and how much quality deliberate practice time can you put in? So it's really about sort of mastering your habits and mastering yourself. And I've had such a good time teaching that and instilling those things in my children. Uh, cause my daughter is also a soccer player and also a really great gymnast. Uh, and it's been so much fun to like have kind of the second chance, you know, cause like I'm not going to become a pro athlete now at age almost 40. Um, but, and not that a pro athlete is like the end all be all, but like, just the 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 chance to teach these kids like the, how you kind of go after whatever your dream might be. That I've just really loved that. So that has consumed so much of my energy and focus in the past uh, you know five six years. Um, but I also do a lot with with my businesses as well. Nomad Athlete, of course, um, is my primary one. But then also Complement, as you mentioned, um, our vegan supplement line, and uh, a few others that are kind of launching off of the backs of those. Uh, so lots and lots of cool stuff. But uh, you know that that's what I do now, but really right now in this in this quarantine time, uh, I've I've kind of really enjoyed just like actually cooking. Like I've cooked so many great vegan meals that like recipes that I had dog-eared and kind of I had eventually given up and said like I'm probably not going to ever actually get to that recipe, that beet gnocchi recipe or whatever <laughs> strange thing that just seems like it'd be so fun to have the time to make. Well, we finally have the time to make all that stuff, and uh, I've been doing a whole lot of that, so it's been really fun for me. Oh, that's cool. So what's it been like during the, the shutdown for, for young athletes? It just seems like they have so much energy and this need to compete. How, <laughs> how have they been dealing with all this? Yeah, well, I mean, you're right. It's been really interesting, um, partially just for that, that kind of getting the energy out. Um, but also like, you know, when, when like my son, as I mentioned, he was, he's just been so dedicated as a soccer player and like wanting to train. And we had plans to go to Spain actually twice in this amount of time, we were going to go to Barcelona to train, which we've done a few other times. Um, and so like that got canceled. His, he plays on a team in Atlanta um, and, and that has gotten canceled. So we were driving there every Friday and like that got, and we're, I'm in Asheville, so it's, it's three and a half hours away. Um, so like suddenly we were just without all these outlets for training and these, these chances to grow. So he's kind of taken it upon himself to like start a really strict personal training regimen. He started an Instagram channel to document that. Um, I don't know. I've just been really impressed at the way he has managed to uh, just just kind of train on his own, which is not the same as training with a team. But, you, you know, it is a chance like and I think this is sort of the, the message that has come out of this time for a lot of people 
It's like you can't do the stuff you normally do, but it's a really great chance to do all the things that you have never really made the time for before because you you know you just you had other things that you did instead. Um, but you know he's he's discovered a lot of value in sort of uh, individual training and and you know just that that sense of like waking up in the morning and you just you know get started and then come in for lunch and then get back at it. I mean I, I've just been so impressed that a ten year old is doing this stuff. Uh, my daughter is somewhat younger; she's seven, so I don't expect the same out of her. Uh, but she's, you know, she plays along with him. She has her gymnastic stuff she does at home. Um, so they have, they have kept plenty busy for sure. Uh, they, you know, yeah, they run around a lot and (laughs) certainly burning those calories off. Yeah. Well, I'm taking a yoga teacher training course on, on zoom, something that I'd wanted Uh to do for a long time, but it was always such a commitment of having to be in, in a geographical location for a period of time. And that was always difficult with my work. But this is so wonderful. And one of the biggest things I'm learning is just exactly what you're talking about, that you create your life based on how you can discipline your time and your actions. It's almost like made to order. If this is where you put your effort, then this is what you're going to get. It's quite stunning. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, and I mean, it's kind of interesting because it, it like puts the responsibility on you really. And I think a, a reason that story perpetuated the idea that like either you have the gift for something or like you're a natural artist or you're not, or you're, you're just as athletic and you have this amazing gift or you don't, it kind of lets you off the hook if, if you're someone who doesn't have it. Cause then you can watch people on TV and say, well, you know, they do this and I just didn't have, wasn't born with that. Um, but when you sort of accept that, like, you're in charge, then then you do have a sense of responsibility that, like, your life is kind of what you make of it. And uh, I, I don't know. I think it's really it's really a neat lesson, uh, one I wish I had learned so much earlier. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm doing similar things. I've started learning um, several different languages, actually. I, I spoke Spanish fairly well before this, um, but I've started spending a lot of time on other languages as well, um, along with kind of cooking some of the foods of some of these cultures, mostly Italian is what my, most of my cooking endeavors go into. Uh, but I've been trying to learn the language as well, given this extra time, uh, as well as a few other little little hobbies and things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's such a strange oh, time. but I, I love it. You're a renaissance man. So <laughs> before we leave um, your fabulous children, do you have to pay special attention to their nutrition because they're athletes as well as growing humans? I mean, yeah, and of course they're vegans as well, right? So like a lot of people do wonder that and like is, you know, they, they a lot of people have the idea that it must be such a chore to manage these kids' diets and like make sure you're doing the best for them. And it is like in the back of my mind, there is always this sense of extra responsibility, particularly because this is what I do for my work is, you know, promote a plant-based diet for sports. So it would it would be awful, uh, <laughs> it would be a shame if it ended up that they reached age 15 or 18 and some doctor said, well, if only they had eaten more meat when they were a kid, or if they'd only gotten the nutrients they needed, you know, they'd probably be at a different level now. Um, so always in the head, in the back of my head, there's, there's that little thing, uh, which, which does drive me to, to kind of make sure I stay on top of things. But honestly, like people ask that question. And to me, the answer is like, I think I have to pay less attention because they're plant-based uh, because of the way. Now, if I just let them go and, and said, Hey, eat whatever you want, as long as it's plant-based, that probably wouldn't be good. But they have my wife and uh, myself to, to model the way they eat off, off of. And I mean, they have to, because we're, we're the ones who are cooking for them um, and basically providing every meal that they, that they eat. So, you know, they're learning and they understand, even if they don't understand consciously, but they just understand because this is the way they, they do it. Like a fish who lives in water, but doesn't know that he lives in water. Um, you know, it's just, they just, they just eat so many, such a wide variety of whole fresh 
foods that I just, I don't worry at all. I mean, I, they take complement, they take the very basic nutrients that I think all vegans should take. Um, but other than that, I, I honestly think it's less a responsibility as far as having to make sure they get stuff than if they were, you know, normal omnivorous kids and they were eating it at McDonald's all the time and had bags of Cheetos and getting half of their calories from that stuff. I feel like if that if your kids are eating that stuff for half their calories, then you really do need to pay very careful attention to make sure that the other half of the calories is giving them great stuff. But I don't know, with with the plant-based diet, I've I've come to, you know, when I started off on this journey, like I paid so much attention to the foods and the nutrients and micro and macronutrients that were in each food and made sure I was getting them. Um, but I've, I've kind of reached the point where I just feel like if you're just eating whole fresh plants and you're eating a lots of different ones, uh, you really don't have to think about it that much. The one thing I do think about for both kids is calories. Um, as athletes, like I, I do want to make sure that they are getting at least the amount of fuel that their body needs to keep building stuff. And as you know, when someone goes plant-based, uh, a lot of times, very naturally, they lose weight, and they do so in a healthy manner because they're eating less calorically dense foods. Um, but a lot of athletes don't don't want that. They don't want to lose weight. And I've dealt with a lot of people over the years who come and say, well, I tried to go plant-based, but after three weeks, I just didn't have a lot of energy, and I was even losing some weight, and I wasn't recovering. And so often when that happens, um, it's simply because the person isn't eating enough calories. They They start eating all plants, and like automatically 20 or 30% of, of the calories in that plate of food that is still going to fill your stomach the same way and make you feel like you're full, uh, you know, 20% or 30% of those calories are gone. So your body has that much less energy to work with. Now it has really good, efficient forms of energy because um, plants are so nutrient dense and they're, they're great at that. But as far as just overall calories in a small space, one of the things that makes plant-based diets so healthy in the long term is that they don't provide a lot of calories in a small space. So for athletes and for my kids, you know, we do have to make some special effort to make sure they get some calorically dense sources that they get, uh, you know, nuts and seeds when when we can, because those are going to pack a lot of calories in. I have a um, like a weight gainer smoothie, which, you know, my ki kids gain weight, of course, because they're growing. But like just a, a kind of thing where like even if we have a day that's kind of bad where they skip lunch or whatever because they're just busy in whatever activities, um, I feel like if they're drinking the smoothie once or twice a day, then like at least they're they're getting most of the good stuff and they're getting a lot of calories in whole food form. Um, and it tastes good. So like that's that's where most of my focus goes, honestly, rather than like, you know, how much protein are they getting or, or are they getting enough of certain vitamin or whatever. So what goes into the weight gain or smoothie? <laughs> well, my wife is the one who makes it most days, so she would have to tell you the precise ingredients. Um, but it is peanut butter or almond butter, uh, flax seeds, one little Brazil nut just to get them some selenium, um, the complement protein powder, uh, some almond milk, some silken tofu and one or two more things that I'm oh a banana or two some cacao nibs some cacao powder um, maybe some dates so you know just all good whole foods and flavors that kids like uh, but all those ingredients that I mentioned have a decent amount of calories uh, in them so it's just more than like because I'll drink a fruit smoothie with some with some maybe some greens in it um, but this this smoothie that's much more dense has you know probably just twice as many calories in it right. And I love your answer to, to the question about what you feed your kids, because I think for so long, certainly when I was uh, raising a, a vegan child back in the 80s and 90s, I was always having to be on the defensive and yeah. saying, well, this is where she gets this and this is where she gets that. And now to be able to say what is really so clear when your kids aren't consuming 50 percent of their calories in junk food, 
you can really pack in the good stuff. So that is so cool. And I, I don't know if you know that my daughter, who of course is now all grown up, is a, a professional aerialist and a stunt performer. And, I remember that. This is vegan from the beginning. It's just hmm. so, so exciting. Yeah. So, <laughs> so now that you're not as focused on, on endurance sports for yourself, but you're looking more at, at general well-being and, and longevity, tell us what you eat. <laughs> um, well, I mentioned the way that I start most days, and that's with a smoothie. Um, I, one of the other things that I've kind of learned in, in my <laughs> infinite wisdom of being age 39 is that uh, if something's easy to do, I will do it for a lot longer than I will if it maybe is, you know, 10% better or, and like, you know, the maximal possible nutritional benefit, but takes a whole lot of work to, to manage and, and maybe I don't like the taste of it. Uh, you know, I went through the phase when I was so serious about sports that I would uh, put that extra effort in to make the perfect recovery meal that I could eat so that I could get, like I said, that extra 10% benefit from that workout. Um, because that mattered to me when, when like a couple minutes or a couple seconds in a marathon time would make a difference. Now, now it doesn't, you know, I want to have these habits and I want to make them last and I want to make the best choices I can day in, day out, most days, uh, you know, hopefully for, for many more decades. So, um, my smoothie these days is like probably has four ingredients in it. I put usually walnuts, flax seeds, a banana, and then some frozen fruit, whatever we happen to have. Um, strawberries, if we have it, is usually my favorite. If we've got some frozen greens, I will throw them in as well. Like if the greens are starting to go bad, we'll usually freeze them. Uh, but I don't even do that every day. Sometimes it's just the fruit and the nuts. Um, and then as far as, you know, if that will often get me to lunchtime because I'll kind of start working. And although I'm kind of hungry or, or <laughs> could otherwise be hungry in the day, like if I was trying to put on the pounds, I would make sure I eat some sort of middle meal before uh, before lunch. But like when I'm working, I'll forget about all that. And then I'll just have a big salad. Um with with beans and nut-based dressing uh, so as to avoid the oil. Like I'm okay with oil. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world like a lot of uh, plant-based people do. But, uh, you know, I, I tend, if I'm going to, I'll just get extra virgin olive oil, try to not to heat it very much. Um, so, you know, that on a salad dressing is okay for me. But if I can, when I'm trying to kind of build a daily habit that I'm going to stick to, um, that's when I try to do a nut-based dressing if possible. So I'll have that in a salad with beans on it. Um, maybe some sort of side dish like rice or, or whole grain bread, if we have it, something like that. Um, and then if, if I do that successfully, then I have made it to usually like one o'clock and all I've eaten is basically raw fruits and vegetables and some nuts and seeds, plus some cooked beans. Cause you can't eat most beans raw. Um, and so like that, that's such a great start if I can manage that. Now I don't always manage that, but if I can do that works really well. Sometimes I'll have leftovers from dinner instead, um, for lunch, in which case I'll have a salad at, at dinner time. Uh, and then for dinner, my favorite easy way to do it, and I think you can tell, like, this is pretty easy. It's when people ask me for a meal plan, what I tell them is, like, well, this type of meal for breakfast, some type of smoothie, um, or it could be an oatmeal where you're using basically the same types of ingredients if you don't like smoothies. Then the big salad with beans and a nut-based dressing for lunch. And then for dinner, any combination of a grain, a green, and a bean. Uh, if, if it meets that criteria and doesn't have too much junk in it or processed stuff, then pretty good as a dinner and works for me. So that framework works really well when I don't know what to make. I will think, okay, what, what can I do that's a grain, a green, and a bean based on what we have around in our house? Um, and a grain, a green, and a bean can take lots and lots of forms. Uh, it could be a pasta dish that has beans in the sauce and some greens stirred in there. Uh, could be a stew, could be tacos, could be a stir fry. I mean, all these things, because uh, if you count if you count tofu or tempeh as a bean, um, you know, tons and tons of plant-based meals take the form of grain, a green, and a bean. And if I get those things, then I'm, I'm, you know, getting some carbohydrates, some protein, 
and of course the really important micronutrients uh, in the greens and works out really well. And usually I can fashion something that the kids will eat as well out of that. Uh, so that's, that's the pretty typical day, snack on fruits, maybe some hummus. Um, but really I'm very proud that I have kind of eliminated junk food. Like it used to be such a thing that I just thought like you kind of have to have these potato chips every now and then. Um, and, and truly every now and then I do have those, but like on a day-to-day basis during the week, uh, I don't know, I, you really can get yourself to, to start your taste buds to change and you really start to crave fruits and vegetables and you really can get past the, the needing of, of the junk to keep you going. Mm-hmm. You know, this is so interesting listening to you, Matt, that we, we live in different places. We're different generations. I've never been an athlete and yet we eat so similarly. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think most health conscious vegans would would find themselves uh, pretty comfortably in in this uh, day's nutrition that you have described but moving on with nutrition i mean you you have a supplement company so obviously you have seen the the need for some supplementation and i know in in our movement it kind of ranges from people who will just reluctantly say well okay if you're total vegetarian have some b12 to others who, who just, you know, you need a whole shelf in your pantry just for bottles of supplements. Mm-hmm. So what's your philosophy and where did you come to this? Or how, how did you come to this? Well, I mean, I'll start with how I came to it. Really, it was just, I kind of had that. So I, I when I first started, um, I think I became B12 deficient probably two years into being vegetarian when I was like maybe six months into being vegan. Um, I had all the symptoms and I didn't really realize it at the time, but at, looking back, um, I had all this abdominal stuff going and weird tingling and stuff. And I just finally said, hey, my God, that was probably a, a B12 or a B12 deficiency. Um, so after that, I really like kind of got scared and started like looking at things. And I said, like, I'm going to do this and, and promote this as the healthiest diet. Uh, better be pretty careful and make sure. So I did lots and lots of research. I've read lots of things um, and came to the conclusion that like you don't need a whole shelf of stuff. You really probably don't even need a full multivitamin that most people take with 20 things in it and 3000 percent of your range of values and whatever. Uh, so just put three things in one version of complement, six in another, um, B12, DHA, EPA, and, and D3 are the three that are in our original complement formula. Cause I, I don't know. I just think keeping it really simple. Um, but kind of getting past the idea that like you're doing something wrong if you need to supplement. So, uh, I think, I think a little bit is good, but you don't need to go overboard. And then in, in the complement plus, I, I know there are other nutrients. And it may be the placebo effect, but I really feel that once I started taking Complement Plus, that there's something in there that I was just not getting before, because I absolutely feel better, which I realize is completely unscientific, because people (laughs) can feel any kind of way. Uh, It's so subjective. But could you just talk a little bit? I, 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 you, you mentioned the the B12. We, we all know if you're plant based or if you're not plant based, but you're over 50, you need the the B12. The D3, you can get tested. Maybe some people are fine with that if they live in sunny places and they're light skinned and they don't use sunblock. But a lot of people are going to need D3. And then you talked about the fully formed omega-3 fatty acids, and I know there's some controversy there. I feel good about taking it. But you've got some other nutrients in in the complement plus, and I wonder if you could just allude to each of those. You want to start with selenium? Sure. Yeah. So, like you said, um, there are those three in in the regular complement, and those happen to be the three that I think are most commonly recommended, uh, least controversial. There is some, of course, around around almost everything, anything. Um, but then, yeah, once you go up to complement plus, which is a pill form, not a spray, uh, we were able to put minerals in there, which we can't get, which don't work in a sprayer. 
they just get clogged. Um, but iodine and zinc in particular, and selenium, which you just mentioned, uh, those are all minerals that that are pretty important and not that easy to get from plant-based foods. Unfortunately, they, you know, they should be. The soil used to contain a lot of these things. Uh, it just doesn't anymore, omniv omnivorous or not. Um, but like if you're non-vegan, you know, this is gross, but the, the stuff they use to clean the uh, dairy equipment, that has iodine in it. So traces of that get into dairy, and that's why people who eat dairy don't have to worry about iodine. Um, so it's, it's not like, you know, suddenly their diet is just better because it has iodine. It's getting it from this weird source. Um, and the soil probably used to have lots more of this. So iodine, zinc, K2, and selenium are the big ones that Complement Plus adds. Um, selenium, yeah, that's that's why I do the Brazil nut for my kids because um, they don't take pills yet. They're still doing the spray. Um, but yeah, that's one. It just um, I think I came upon it as, as something that was linked to testosterone production um, as one that I thought would be important to have. Um, turns out it is important to have, and uh, that's that's one of the things. But yeah, I mentioned iodine and zinc. Iodine's in a lot of uh, people's table salt, but a lot of vegans will switch to... Uh, you know, they start thinking more about whole foods and like being careful with what they're eating. So they get unrefined sea salt and that's usually not iodized. So you don't have that in there. Um, zinc has some issues. It's in some beans and things, but often not absorbed. And uh, and K2 itself is just not that easy to get in most Western diets. Uh, so that's what I take. It's kind of my insurance policy. And uh, I'm pretty happy that we have developed it and, and packaged it up into a, a nice convenient way to, for vegans to get it. Yeah, and, and K2 is, is fascinating to me because we used to think that K1, which is so rampant in vegetables, you could yep. transfer, but uh, <laughs> evidently not so much. So for our bones and uh, immunity and other things, it's all great. Matt Frazier, no meat athlete, fabulous dad of athletes, <laughs> <laughs> author and, and uh, good friend. Thank you so much for all you do in the world and thanks for... Uh, for these wonderful products and the great people that you work with. All the best to you and all the best to you, our listener. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for being our wonderful host for so long. To everybody, God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We talk to the animals, and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast, hosted by the three of us, myself, Julie Heert, Karen Debbie-Smith, and Meredith Tolleson. We will show you how to deepen your relationship with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul-level animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, and listen as part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.